Welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by Megan Daly to discuss the multifactorial nature of low back pain. Megan is a physical therapist, coach, educator, and passionate fitness enthusiast who has years of experience helping individuals navigate lower back pain, especially while maintaining an active and healthy lifestyle. Megan teaches for the Institute of Clinical Excellence, a continuing education company that teaches a psychologically informed and fitness-forward approach to PT. Megan and I discussed common causes and factors that influence low back pain, the most effective exercises and treatments to manage it, and ultimately how to build mental and physical resilience. There are tons of evidence-based tips in here that I learned a lot from. Enjoy this episode with Megan Daly. Megan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, super excited to get to know you a little bit and dive into um, quite an exciting topic today. If we can kind of just get started with you telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are now. Yeah, um, I guess so like what got me into PT in general, um, I've always been athletic. I was an athlete growing up. And I mean, if we even go back as far as like elementary school, playing soccer. Um, So I two parts to this one, my parents are physicians. So I grew up in the medical field, um, literally like was at the nurse's station. Cause my parents like couldn't find a babysitter, like while they made rounds kind of thing. Um, and then starting in third grade, I started having osteochondritis desiccans, like on a relatively regular basis, actually in both knees, um, a couple of times surgical and very quickly realized that while in those instances, I actually did need surgery. It was the rehab side of things and getting stronger that kept me okay. In fact, I kind of went against some guidelines from the physicians and loaded up, like started doing like heavy squats as I got older and doing things that were quote unquote, like not what I was supposed to do if I wanted to be able to walk past the age of 30 kind of stuff. Um, and found that that's actually what helped me a lot. So that in college, I was, I was pre-med and I was actually, I have a math degree of all things, but ended up with another surgery from an OCD lesion and getting an oats graft during college. And that pivoted me back to physical therapy. So I took a fifth year after I graduated to get all my prereqs, get all my volunteer hours, and then apply to PT school. Um, yeah. And then as far as where I am now, I honestly have ice to think for a lot of that. I think, um, if you've ever talked to many faculty, we all kind of have a similar story where we were working so hard. We were doing so much for our patients and very quickly burning out because we seemed like we were, or we felt like we were the only ones in our clinics or like in our environment, like really trying to give our all and trying to fight the system a little bit as far as insurance-based care. And then finding ice and being like, oh, there is, there actually is a group of clinicians that's just as passionate as I am that really loves this. And, and there are ways to kind of work around it and be fitness forward. And I don't have to try to like fight with my director as much about getting people the care that they want um, and getting a barbell in the clinic. So yeah, that's, it's, that is a long-winded way of like where I am today. And yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love to hear um, specifically, I didn't realize, you know, your background with dealing with um, OCD as a young child. And I can imagine the impact that that had on you mentally when you were told by certain people, don't do this, or you'll never do this. And um, that must be so powerful for you to be able to relate to patients who unfortunately go through similar things where they might be told like, you'll never be able to do this. And um, being able to help them, you know, prove that they can. And I love that you're involved in, you know, the ice space. And um, from a personal standpoint, before getting into PT school, started getting into podcasts and ice physio is one of the first, you know, podcasts I found. And I was just immediately sucked in when I heard that there were a group of people combining fitness with physical therapy. And immediately I knew that's what I wanted to get involved in. And I was a little bit disappointed in physical therapy school that we never really talked about that. So I'm really grateful as well that just from an outside view, from a student lens, um, that there are people out there putting this, putting this, um, these ideas and these concepts and research behind it too. And thank goodness for Instagram, because the more I connect with (laughs) clinicians like yourself and Lindsay and Jeff and everybody, it's like, I don't feel so alone. And I feel excited to to join you guys. So thank you for all the work that you guys are doing as a crew. I mean, there's a lot of us watching out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 
I mean, I think it's amazing to find that early on, especially like even as early as being a student or prior, like that's, I mean, that's a game changer. Yeah, definitely. So kind of diving into our topic today, one thing that is such a limitation, you know, not only from a physical therapy perspective, but just in fitness in general is low back pain. Like it's so common. We see it all the time. So I'd really love to just kind of pick your brain a little bit about how you navigate this with the patients and clients that you work with. And I'd love if we can just start with, you know, talking mostly about active individuals. Um, What are some of the more common causes of low back pain that you come across? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really going to be mostly one or one of two things. And there's a lot of things that could fall under either one of these categories. Um, I find that it's either weak back extensors, like maybe they think that to avoid back pain, they need to do core exercises. So they keep doing these ab exercises and not really ever training the back specifically. Um, And then they try to go do something that requires low back endurance and it fails on them and they tweak. And it's, I mean, most PTs kind of know like that could be during like the final rep of a deadlift. It could be pulling something out of the oven. Like when it hits its threshold, it hits its threshold. It's generally something smaller than what seems warranted for like the injury that ensues afterwards. Um, so that weakness or actually no, the second one is also still underneath weakness, like an overuse injury. Like you have a strong back, but it doesn't have the endurance and the strength required for whatever task you're trying to put it under. Um, like, I mean, I work within a CrossFit gym. So some, most of the back pain that I see actually is from like that oven example or bending over to tie their shoe, but it's when I dive into it, they did Diane the day before and tried to go RX when they shouldn't have kind of thing. Um, for those of you who don't know, heavy deadlifts and handstand pushups, um, or they decided to go suddenly run a bunch, like pick up and run three miles when they don't really run outside of a 400 meter every now and then, and then come into the gym and did deadlifts, like something where they got overworked. And then at some point throughout the next 24 to 48 hours, they, they capped their threshold just with general movement. That's probably the most common that I see for back pain. I will also state, um, even in active individuals, this is a little bit more common in inactive individuals. Um, but I will see like almost like stress. So like someone who isn't eating enough is stressed about whether it's a major trauma or little micro traumas. Um, and then like that, just that takes their nervous system to its capacity. So as soon as they go to move and do anything that involves the low back, they injure it. So those would kind of be the two that I say majorly. Yeah. I love how you map that out. And it's so interesting how, and I've, you know, experienced this personally as well, where there's almost like there could be like this latency between um, when there was that like load capacity imbalance and then when the actual moment of like ouch occurs. And it's so frustrating, especially when you are active, that it's something silly, like bending over to pick up a five pound item off the floor. And you're like, why did that hurt when I can go in deadlift X amount of weight, you know? So exactly. Yeah. And half the time that population, like when they come in and their aggravating factors are like sitting for a long time or standing for a long time. And they're like, but why can I still go do X, Y, and Z in the gym? Like, yeah, it's really weird. Um, real quick. There actually is one more. Cause I just, I was about to use myself an example and I was like, wait, like, I didn't even say that one. So I currently have a little bit of low back pain going on and I did nothing other than stand up after sitting for 30 minutes the other day but it's because I was working on something and I was being so intense that I tightened my pelvic floor for the Like I was probably gripping that entire time without realizing it. So I will say there is a ton of low back pain that I see that is, that at least has a pelvic floor component if it's not fully pelvic floor. Yeah, that's really interesting too. And something that um, I've been learning about little by little, you know, from clinicians like yourself who are shedding some light on that. And I guess like one of the most interesting things and kind of main points here is like, there are so many different places that can have some kind of dysfunction or overload or whatever word you want to use that end up manifesting in the back. And from a personal standpoint, I've dealt with um, like right side of low back pain on and off for years now. It started when I was training for a half marathon, but I wouldn't feel it while I was running. I would feel it the next day studying in the library be like, why the hell does it hurt so bad if I'm sitting here? And I went to an awesome physical therapist who tried a bunch of different things with me. And it it was kind of the first time that really got me thinking. And 
it does come back on occasion, but what I've noticed is the times that it comes back is when I'm sleep deprived, when I'm stressed out, when I'm overworked Mm -hmm. and there might be a physical thing that kind of sets it off. But typically if I'm sleeping well, if I'm eating well, and if I feel good, I'm not really feeling that pain. Can you kind of explain like what might be the mechanism behind that for people who experience that? Yeah. So I even have this like drawn out, like to the point where I'm not sure I could actually, it's a dry erase marker thing on my whiteboard, but I actually don't know if I could erase it at this point. Like it would take some harsh chemicals to get it off. Cause I've just left it up for so long, but it's a graph of like, Hey, here's like where your threshold currently is. But before you even go to the gym or go on, hit the trails or do whatever activity you're talking about, your nervous system is already up towards that threshold. And it's, like with your sleep. And if it was bad quality sleep, that's going to bump it a little bit higher. And then if you didn't get enough calories or you ate sugary processed foods, like that's going to bump it up a little bit more. And then if you're dealing with something psychosocial, whether it just be normal stress or grief, like that's going to exponentially increase it even more. And so then you go do that, like what, like your warm up, and then it bumps it up a little bit more. And then maybe if you were sitting at your desk all day, like there's other things that get it. And so it's whatever it is that tipping point isn't actually the thing. It was everything leading up to that. And so there are those factors of like if your system is already working towards a threshold, because it's like if you have poor sleep, poor nutrition, and then high stress, like that's your energy capacity right there. Like it's gone. You don't have anything left to, for your muscles to actually function. Like your body's just in basically like to an extreme example, like survival mode. So it doesn't have the capacity to allow your tissues to function like they're, you're supposed to. There are definitely some ice podcasts where people really dive into like more of the science and environment, but that's the, the quick and dirty talk that I give pretty much every patient that comes in my door, particularly if I think those factors are applied. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm picturing almost like a bucket and just like pouring water into the bucket, like a little bit. Yeah. That same bucket that you see for like daily stressors and like how you're functioning in life, like that can absolutely apply to your body's capacity as far as like muscular function. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, it's interesting to think about too, this balance between like acute and chronic stressors or acute and chronic workload. You know, I'm sure you probably see some patients who acutely have a flare up of stress or increase in activity demands or whatever it might be. But you probably, probably also see patients or clients who have this chronic kind of overload of stress and stuff like that. Do you see like manifestations of both amongst the people that you work with? Absolutely. Um, And it's going to look vastly different for everyone, but Like I have, I actually have a patient right now who's in, um, he thought he had torn his rotator cuff. It's just ticked off because he was like, his stress relief is coming to the gym. And so he was overdoing it by coming into the gym more than usual on top of this spike of like work stress and life stress and a, a few things that he had going on and the tissues got overloaded. And so I had, like, I went through an explanation of like, Hey, I realized that the gym is your stress relief, but like, we need to figure out a way to kind of balance it a little bit better. And maybe let's try to prioritize sleep more. Cause he wasn't, cause he was stressed about things. And just that kind of took a backseat, even though he knows better, same with nutrition. Um, he actually works with the nutrition coach at the gym. So I was like, Hey, like, let's get it in a conversation again with Andres and get that, that dialed in basically try to create an environment that's as best as possible, because there's like, I can't, the stressors that he's dealing with, I can't often take the actual stressor away, but we can help mitigate the stressor by attacking the other things. And then talking a lot about like recovery in the gym. So that's a good example of like an acute one, because it was just a spike in overall workload at the same time that like something hit with his family and it just pushed it over the edge versus I'll use myself as an example for the uh, kind of the in-between, because I think that's something that we also need to consider. Um, So after my dad passed, major, like got diagnosed with situational depression. But I mean, I think that's honestly pretty much anyone who loses a family member like that could, could fall under that category without, like, I don't love getting labeled with a diagnosis, but, um, that's a much bigger thing where I then went snowboarding with some friends and took a fall. Well, because my body was already trying to deal with grief and a lot of other stressors, I didn't have a whole lot of a threshold capacity. And so even though I have really strong tissues, they failed and I ended up with a slap tear. Well, 
on the backside of that still, I did conservative care, but it took eight months, which is a little bit longer than maybe we would think otherwise, but it's because I was still dealing with grief that entire time. So recovery took a little bit longer. Um, and that's, I've had similar conversations with patients along that lines. Um, I would say, particularly with back pain, I see it a bunch with chronic stress. It tends to be my high functioning type A females. Um, I see it in other populations, but I I had a stereotype. I feel a a little bit targeted here. (laughs) If I, if I had to, like, I have a C-level sweet exec right now that I'm treating and she was like, I don't understand why this keeps coming back. And I was like, I've literally made her write out her schedule and everything that she has to do. And I was like, do you, do you still not understand? She's like, okay, you might have a point. I was like, all right, let's work on this. But I mean, it does at some point, it's going to catch up with you. If you are, I mean, I think everyone who's listening kind of can picture what I'm talking in my head in their heads right now. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's so true. And I've experienced that. I think it's easier to understand when you've experienced that kind of overload of stress and um, just mental, physical demands and how it can manifest. But have you had situations where you know, you might be working with a patient who is dealing with low back pain and they don't quite understand, or they might be even a little bit resistant to the conversation about sleep and nutrition. Like, have you dealt with those patients who simply are looking for like the physical fix, give me the needles, give me the massage. And it might be difficult to have a conversation about those lifestyle factors all the time. Um, I, it's less without of network care. I will say that, um, simply because I think the, the general patient population that is willing to drop cash is a little bit more ready for change as a general rule. I still see some of those, particularly those type A females, actually, that if if we're going to stereotype again, it would be, um, that group or like, there's definitely some male population as well. If we get into that, I saw it probably over 50% of my patients when I worked insurance-based care, I had to be creative on how I approached that topic because they weren't willing to hear it yet. And I think that's a skill set that they don't really talk about in school, but it's an important one. It's to recognize where people are, even on the psychosocial side of things. And can you really, what topics can you really push and dive into? Because a lot of times it's not going to be day one. Like you need to get a lot more rapport and you can't target it directly. Um, Like how, who actually responds well, if I'm just like, Hey, you need to get more sleep. Like the immediate response is going to be, I don't have time for that. That's not an option with almost everyone. Um, even if there were actual ways for them to do it, like that's not, they're, they're going to get on the defensive very quickly. So what I will often do, that's actually part of why that threshold thing is kind of permanently on my board. And it permanently has like little boxes for stress, sleep, and diet. Cause inevitably at some point, someone's just staring at the whiteboard and asks a question about it. Um, if I've dropped little things like, cause it's in my intake forms at this point too. Like I ask about sleep, um, number of hours, but also quality of sleep, how well rested you feel when you wake up, stuff like that. I ask about diet. I tend to get pretty specific on that. Like I will have on there, like what's your total caloric intake? Just so I have some guidelines and I kind of know if it's something I need to deep dive into, or if it's like in the first appointment and I'll ask about stressors and stress relief. So they already are kind of prompted. Like I can just ask questions and it's very normal for a provider to ask questions about something that's on the intake form. So I think that's a really great way. If you're not already asking those upfront before they even come in the door, that's a really good way to just get the ball rolling on that conversation. And then as I'm asking questions about it, I can get a sense for where they're at readiness wise. Like you, you can tell their tone, their body language, everything as to whether or not that's something you can approach yet or not. And if it's not, then that's where I'm like, okay, cool. Like we'll circle back to that later. Like I might not even say anything. Um, or I might just, I mean, at this point I have enough anecdotal stories from patients that I might just drop like one little story into conversation wherever it fits to get them start to think. And then it's, I'll just let them sit on that. And by the time that they come in the next time, they're going to be like, Hey, can we circle back? You you made this comment last time. What did you mean by that? Can we unpack that? And that's whether it's the stress, sleep or diet, we can kind of circuitous, like go around in a circle way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that advice. And it's something that really resonates with me as a 
I'm going to say student, but like young clinician, I'll call myself now because I'm finally getting started soon. Um, but it's, you kind of have to like push your ego to the side a little bit too, when you're working with patients like that, because fresh out of school, like we are so excited to just like educate and like throw as much knowledge as we can and like really go hard with our patients in terms of like knowledge and conversation in an effort to help them. But I now see how it can be really overwhelming. So I love that you mentioned, like kind of introduce it, just like throw that idea in there, let it marinate. And when the person is ready, they'll come to you. And when I talked with this, talked to Lindsay a little bit about this topic, um, one of the things that she said is just like, not being afraid to just straight up ask them, like, I noticed that you're struggling with sleep. Is that something that you'd like help with? And the person yeah. might be like, no, I'm doomed. I can't get more than six hours. And then it's like, all right, now's not the time. So I think it is really special to be able to recognize like where that person is. Absolutely. Yeah. I was 100% like early on in my career, I was that clinician that tried to almost like force the pain science conversation down every patient's throat. Please don't do that. It, it backfired every single time if they weren't ready for it. Yeah. So yeah I've, I've talked it. to enough uh, clinicians like yourself who have been through that stage where like you look back and you're like, oh man, I kind of overdid it. And I do catch myself at times doing that. And I know it's just part of the process. Yeah, like, you're just so excited. I mean, that's, that's why we all do it. You want to help. You're pumped to show off your knowledge and the patient honestly just does not care. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know, another thing that's coming to mind is like all of these lifestyle considerations and, and things that we're talking about are so important and so impactful with low back pain. But I'd also like to kind of hear your thoughts on, you know, some of the more um, typical, we'll say physical therapy type of treatments that might be used to help with low back pain. Um, one of the things I love about what you all preach over at the Institute of Clinical Excellence is this concept of and not or that, you know, we can focus on exercise and lifestyle and also use some of these, you know, manual therapy, more localized type of treatment. So I'd love to just ask you, what is kind of your philosophy or what do you tend to use um, in terms of physical treatments or like manual therapy techniques with low back pain? Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's going to vary. I mean, obviously, um, I do a lot. I do a decent amount of dry needling with STEM. Um, there's various STEM settings. I know. So I actually is launching our dry needling course. So that will be an amazing tool for anyone who wants to dive into that. Um, but STEM just to get some blood flow. I love using that in the area. Occasionally, um, if like, if their restriction is, so if I like, I'm not seeing lumbar flexion or lumbar extension, like they can only move in one direction and they're just guarded and won't go in the other then I like, like maybe I'll do the dry needling initially to just get that blood pump going. Um, but then I might follow it up with some cupping with movement where I put cups on the back and do like a cat cow and like working into those positions with some assistance, um, whether that be like, I've done hands-on assistance with that. Um, and then, I mean, I'm a huge uh, fan of manipulation if the patient can tolerate it and they're up for it. Um, I rarely have someone not up for it in the low back. Like the only one is obviously I'm sure we've all heard like there's some fear mongering around cervical, um, which I still love. I absolutely love. And I try to educate and build rapport with everyone so that I can do it if I think it's going to be helpful. The low back. I mean, yeah, I'm doing that a bunch. Also TLJ manips, but we're absolutely following that up with the loading, getting some blood flow, whether it be like arms only bike and then loading up the low back for sure. I would say most of, if someone's super acute, we might spend a little bit more time on manual. The vast majority of my patients, like I'm done with manual within 20 minutes and in the gym, loading them up. Yeah, that's awesome. Love to hear that. And I love that approach and um, being able to kind of like just adjust again, based on where the patient is at, you know, somebody might need a little bit more TLC with the manual therapy type of stuff to tone things down initially, but you're always having in the back of your mind that like the ideal scenario is to then load them up. And um, I assume working with getting the patient into those provocative positions as well, right? Like I think yeah. one of the biggest things in physical therapy that I've seen on clinical is like once a patient starts to do a movement or they report, oh, it hurts when I bend over, the first response is like, okay, let's not bend over. 
but then it's like, well, how is that ever going to get better? So what's kind of your approach? Let's say if somebody has like a flexion intolerance, how are you going about gradually working them into that? Yeah. So that's where, I mean, again, going back to the dry needling or a manip or something that's going to ramp pain signals down and ramp up muscle activation. Cause a lot of that pain is going to be like guarding or inflammation. Like it's, yeah. So those are great tools to kind of be able to get them moving and then say it, it's going to depend on where they're at. If it's really severe, like they can't move into flexion at all, then I am, I'm going to bias a little bit towards extension initially. Like they're probably going to do some reverse hypers, maybe some Chinese planks stuff where I can work in a more neutral or an extended position to get those muscles firing. And then we're going to do very gentle, maybe like a cat cow kind of thing where I can start introducing flexion without it actually being fully into a hinge and then just kind of work with them. Um, also, it would be tough to talk about like a flexion intolerant, low back pain or movement stuff without addressing the fact that like, if there's a shift, a lateral shift on board that has to get fixed first, no matter what, like you're not going to be successful working back into a painful motion. If there's still a shift happening, um, which goes back and that's a little bit more of a manual technique and then a lateral shift correction for the exercise. But I, We'll take the example of flexion intolerant. I mean, I love using reverse hypers, Chinese planks, Sorensen holds, heavy farmer's carries to get that person, like get the blood flow going, get the muscles working again. And then typically after I do, like if I do needling, if they can let me do a manip, if they're flexion intolerant, that's, that's a maybe I might be doing a TLJ or something a little bit different um, to try to keep them out of flexion initially hit those exercises that use more of a neutral or an extended position. And then generally if I retest flexion, like they can move decently well. And then we're going to, I'm going to take that window of opportunity to work into that motion some and retest again. Nice. And I think that's so, so great too, when you have the time with the patient or just have that understanding of doing like some pre-testing, post-testing, like do the treatment approach, do the needling, whatever it is. And then follow it up with retesting their movement. Cause I've seen like, not just from a physical perspective, but also from that psychosocial, like buy-in perspective, when a person can feel even just a little bit better or move even just a little bit better intra session, like that's where the magic happens. And it's like, you have hope again. And, um, you know, it's, it's awesome to hear. And those exercises you mentioned are some of those are pretty new to me. And I love, you know, people like yourself who were sharing them Um, the Chinese plank, like such an underrated exercise that I think is gaining more traction on Instagram now. Um, Mm -hmm. Super cool. But one of the exercises that I want to discuss a little bit more in detail with you, because I saw you make an Instagram post about this. And it was one of the things that caught my eye about having you on the show. Um, But deadlifts, you know, deadlifts get a bad rep. A lot of people blame their low back pain on deadlifts. And I would just like to kind of open the floor to you on your thoughts between like the relationship between deadlifts and low back pain. Yeah. So it's going to go back to the whole thing about like, what, what patients do I see back pain happen in? And if it's weak, like we want the back to be stronger. What's a great exercise to get the back stronger deadlifts. So it's like, I think uh, there's been a few, maybe it was Zach. I'm trying to remember which ice faculty, probably Zach, AKA the barbell physio made a post where it's like, all right, like if the biceps hurt, like we get the biceps stronger. If your knee, if you have knee pain, like we get the surrounding muscular stronger. So why is it that when we go to back pain, we shy away from exercises that are going to get the back stronger? Like, why does the focus suddenly shift? That doesn't make sense. Um, and there's a lot of research now to show that deadlifts are one of the best things for back pain. Um, I don't want to give away too much that's in the course, but there's a really cool lecture in our lumbar course that we do on deadlifts um, or just strengthening in general. But there's this one research study that out of Holmberg or his Holmberg at all out of Sweden. And it's probably one of my favorite studies, even though it's a little bit like it would never pass an IRB board here. Um, he got three patients with unrelenting, like chronic back pain. And I realize that's a very small in it's only three, but still he basically from day one, they had to pull their like heavy 
deadlifts from the ground. Now, obviously that's going to change because day one with like unrelenting, very acute back pain, not a super heavy load, but they would increase the load as they were able to tolerate. So as heavy as possible from day one, it was like two, starting with two sets, five reps, and then working up two times a week. But he was trying to prove that like with just deadlifts, do we not only get stronger, but do we also decrease back pain? And what he found was that there was an initial spike in pain. I think that's not surprising to anyone who's listening to this. If you're pulling close, like your max of the day from day one with back pain, like it's going to have a little bit of spike, but what was great was five weeks in, they had a 40% reduction in low back pain, which is huge. Like that's a giant win at the five week mark. And that was with nothing else other than pulling head dip, heavy deadlifts. And then they also found, I mean, these people got stronger because they were able to pull significantly more weight by the end of this study, but they also had zero adverse side effects. Like there are no negative outcomes with this study and they got out of back pain and it stayed out of back pain with follow-up. Like, so it's just this idea of like, why are we giving this lift a bad rap when it actually does everything that we want? Now that's not to say go deadlift with your patients from day one. Like that's where that and not or thing comes in. Let's do all the things that we know that get people out of acute pain, get them loading. Again, those Chinese planks reverse type, like whatever it is that gets them loading, but we're absolutely going to work back into let's retrain the hip hinge pattern. Let's start loading you up. Maybe it's an elevated deadlift and then take it a little bit lower and a little bit lower until we're pulling heavy weight from the ground. And I mean, I see amazing results in the clinic with patients, especially with low back pain. Um, there's also really good, um, research on the stronger your deadlift and the better your low back endurance, like the less you're likely to have it reoccur, which is huge considering, I mean, what do we know about back pain? Once you have it once, like your chances of having it again, astronomically increase, but they found that if you just get stronger, that does start to actually make a huge difference. And we don't see it as readily. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you for sharing that information and some of the the nuggets from that study. And I agree with you. I mean, it's super powerful to hear that. And it makes sense. Like we focus on strengthening the quads for the knee and strengthening the rotator cuff for the shoulder. Like why aren't we strengthening the posterior chain for the back? So I'm with you on that, but um, that also just makes me think, you know, we are taught in a lot of clinical scenarios that, when a person has back pain, we should place some emphasis on, you know, quote unquote core training, which we know that like the term core is also like one of the broadest things ever. And yes. some PTs, <laughs> some PTs will argue that like every single muscle is part of our core. Um, but with patients who have back pain, are you doing, or are you addressing any kind of like isolated, we'll say more of that anterior musculature, or are you focusing solely on like posterior chain stuff? Yeah, definitely not anything isolated. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like you're going to activate your core with a Chinese plank or with a Sorensen holder, like a lot of the exercises that I, or a farmer's carry, like a lot of things that I will use for back pain, but I've never once done like an isolated anterior, like abdominal exercise for low back pain. Cause think about it. I mean, with the example of, so if we have knee pain where what we want is to get the quad stronger, like what's going to happen if we get the hamstring stronger instead, like that, that doesn't just makes it doesn't make sense. So the, if I were to just work on say like sit-ups and work on the rectus abdominis, I'm probably actually going to start aggravating the back pain at some point versus I absolutely want the entire core or that abdominal region to be strong but it needs to be in conjunction with the low back and all those other supporting musculature. So I won't do anything isolated, but it will get targeted through exercises that target that entire area. Awesome. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess like the glutes are probably on board with that as well. Like they're going to be involved in some of these other exercises and definitely important, but thinking about making things functional too, like, again, going back to PT school and like, I love talking about PT school because it's such a funny thing where my PT school prepared me tremendously for my board's exam. Like I learned everything I had to know for that test, but then you get into the clinic and it's like, wow, this stuff is like not really being done anymore. And people love to blame school, but it's not school's fault because school is preparing us for the test. And then you get into it and it's like, oh boy, I need to challenge like everything I've ever learned. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's always the tough thing. Cause I mean, like you said, it's not the school's fault, 
Um, I mean, it's no one's fault really, but it's just the red tape around designing the exam. Like it's inevitably going to be a couple years behind on the research. Like there's just no way to approve stuff that fast, really. Um, I would say that's where I think it's really important for students to get really good clinicals. Um, I myself did it kind of the incorrect way. Like, so for my school, we had to do an inpatient, a subacute, and then, or like an acute, a subacute, and then an outpatient ortho. They've redesigned my program since so that you can have a fourth, so you can do like a specialty one. But that was like the core. And we actually had a contract with a clinic in Australia for your outpatient that counted as your outpatient ortho one. And I just love travel. So I went with that one. And I don't necessarily regret it because I loved being in Australia. But I mean, I never even saw a rotator cuff like in my outpatient ortho rotation. Um, it was really it was a more like Mulligan, like McKinsey kind of rotation, which, again, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It just meant that. I had to kind of learn on the fly when I graduated and went into clinic, like, how do I actually work with these patients? And thank goodness for my fitness background, I think was kind of a lifesaver um, mixed in with what I did learn manual technique wise at my school so that I was able to be successful. But I think that's where anyone who's listening, who's a student and trying to figure out rotations, like be intentional about where you go, because that's going to be the difference of being successful on your boards and in the clinic versus just being successful on your boards. Yeah, I definitely uh, can echo that from experience. And I agree with you too, that having a fitness background is extremely valuable as a physical therapist, especially if you want to work with active individuals, but arguably if you want to work with everybody, I mean, I would say everyone, I mean, it, it came in so handy with even inpatient stuff. Like I've done some inpatient work since school and a decent amount of subacute work. And I mean, it was huge there. It just gets you thinking about things a little bit differently. Um, like Julie Brower and Alex Germano are two ICE people and Christina Private. But I mean, Julie comes up with really creative ways to make fitness forward things work in a home health or an inpatient setting. And I think that's huge. I'll also say, I think coaching, like being a coach, I'm an instrumentally better clinician since becoming a coach, whether that be in CrossFit or otherwise, but you get really good at cueing a patient. And I think as a general rule, PTs kind of suck at that, honestly. Yeah, I agree. And like, it's, again, it's, we don't like learn about it. We don't get to really do it that often. And like you said, clinical experiences can make or break that. And um, yeah, all the clinicians you just mentioned, definitely shout out to them. I had uh, Dustin Jones on the show a couple months back we had just the absolute best conversation about how he started out as, you know, hardcore, like I want to work with athletes, working with runners, found himself in a sniff because of losing his job and just totally fell in love with like, holy shit, I can apply these principles to older adults and they get exponentially better. Like, oh yeah, so it's- there's some of the most fun patients to work with. Like that's actually probably one of the things that I miss about working insurance-based care it could be younger or older. It just tended to be older. Like the chronic pain, like the patients that were just there because some insurance company told them they had to go to PT and like getting them to buy in and getting them fitness forward is just, I mean, it's a different feeling than someone who's already kind of bought in before they even walked into your door. 100%. I agree with you there. And I am starting out uh, my career in the insurance based you know, setting. And that's definitely a population that I hope to be able to draw in a little bit myself. So I'm glad to hear that, you know, you've gotten some enjoyment out of that too. And, you know, as we start to kind of wrap up here, Megan, another topic I want to dive into a little bit that I think is very much related to low back pain is imaging. Um, You know, all of us in the PT space have had patients come in and say, oh, my doctor told me, you know, my knee's bone on bone and I'm screwed or, you know, one of the things with low back pain is degenerative disc disease. And I would love if you can just, you know, briefly discuss the relationship between MRI findings and pain. And also if you can just kind of like break down, what is this degenerative disc disease? Because it sounds awful and terrifying. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Um, So first off, I mean, the correlation between imaging and pain is that there isn't one. Um, which that is often a very hard conversation to have with patients because they, I mean, society as a whole has gotten this information basically shoved down their throat for years that we really need to know our image. And that's what makes the difference. Um, 
So it, that is a very tough conversation to have. And I, that's another one that I kind of have to ease into depending on where they are. Cause if they strongly believe that it, their image matters, then that is something that I have to be a little bit careful with. Cause I can't just slam the door in their face and be like, Nope, that's not it. Like I'm right. You're wrong. Like that's not going to go well. Um, but yeah, there is zero correlation with pain. There's, if you just even go Google like asymptomatic findings and in imaging, like you'll see all kinds of charts. Those are actually really handy to have on and just even like placing them somewhere where the patient can kind of like glance over and see it and start to ask questions. There's, I know there's one where it like shows the percentages of like slap tears with patients without shoulder pain or bone on bone in the knee and they don't have pain. There are plenty of really cool ones. You can find a whole chart on lumbar imaging findings and the prevalence in each age group where they have zero pain. So then it makes it really easy to kind of ease into a conversation where you talk about like, Hey, why can't you be one of these people? We're not going to magically make that image finding go away, but why can't we get you out of pain and have you be one of these asymptomatic findings? Like that's very doable. There's plenty of people going around doing insert their chosen activity here that have these findings and so why can't you be one of those? Um, there's also, if I really need to go into it with a patient, there's a really cool study where they took one person, got MRIs at 10 different facilities within, I think it was a two or three week period, something really short, and they all had vastly different findings. So it's that idea of like, go get another opinion on it then. Like everyone's going to read it a little bit different. Um, and then also every single clinician or physician clinical guideline in the world for low back pain says, do not image unless there's like, if you're concerned about a tumor, that's a vastly different story, but outside of something like hard neuroscience that actually warrants some imaging, like that shouldn't be done because we know that it does not correlate with pain. Um, and then on top of that, I, especially with degenerative disc disease, I almost don't even go into the whole like imaging versus pain thing. I, more likely immediately go into like, um, so it's Tim Flynn that said this, and I love this quote, it's the wrinkles on the inside. You don't get imaging. You don't get PT for your face because you have wrinkles. Do you? So why are you doing it for your low back? Like we just need to get it stronger so that those areas are unloaded and you don't feel anything. So that's kind of, I mean, it's, that's really that verbatim almost is like my little spiel. And most patients are like, huh? Okay. Yeah. Like it's, it's very normal. So that plus the knowing the percentages of, I mean, hell, if you're like 20, I think it's a 30% chance that you have a disc bulge. I also, I can kind of cheat and use my own. Like I am quote unquote bone on bone in my knees and have been since college. Apparently I don't have knee pain as long as I stay strong. Yeah. 100%. Wow. That's awesome. I love that you mentioned all those studies too. And, um, the wrinkles on the inside quote, as you were kind of explaining that I, I actually jotted that down for me to (laughs) bring up because it's also one of my favorite quotes and I hadn't heard about it until fairly recently. Um, and I wish that I had known that quote when I worked with a primarily Medicare population, because I'm like, Oh man, people would have loved that. But (laughs) just what you were saying too, about how, our system is like, unfortunately set up for people to assume that they need imaging. And I actually had a a previous patient of mine who was a patient from one of my clinical rotations, Um, you know, got to know her pretty well on a personal level. We became friends on Facebook and she recently reached out to me because she was having back pain and um, I had seen her for her shoulder, but she called me not to ask for any like specific medical advice, of course, but just like, Hey, this is what's going on. I'd love to hear your thoughts. She had been to a chiropractor, two different doctors and a physical therapist. And essentially everybody wasn't really giving her the time of day because she hadn't received an MRI. And the best provider that she saw in her opinion was the physical therapist. She's like, I love the evaluation she did. And, you know, she took her time with me, but she was concerned about the pain down my leg and said that I need to get an MRI before I come back. And I was upset to hear that because you know, I don't disagree. Every, every physical therapist has a different level of comfort. There could be something going on neurologically. I get it. But the fact that this clinician pushed her out the door and said, we can't do anything. I was like, Oh, like there's so much you can do. So 
I gave her some general recommendations on, you know, going for walks and doing what she can tolerate and X, Y, and Z. Um, and not to talk about myself here, but she's feeling a lot better. And yeah. I think a lot of that had to do with just the conversation of like, yeah, you're 65 years old. You know, I did use the wrinkles on the inside with her and she loved that. And I said, I'm a little reluctant for you to get imaging if it gets better, because you're going to see stuff in there. You know, you're in your sixties. They're going to tell you that you have degeneration and that's okay. But so it's just, it totally falls into the example of you just gave of like, if she does go back to the orthopedic and gets those imaging, like what's going to happen then, you know, it's, yeah. it's a tough situation. Yeah. We talk all the time. I mean, we, we're inevitably going to go a little bit towards our bias. So if she gets imaging and then goes back to an ortho to like read the image, cause that's typically the order of events, like their bias is going to be towards fusion or surgery of some kind. Not all of them. I've met a few that are really good and their go-to is like conservative care, but I mean, absolutely. Like I, yeah, that actually kind of bums me that the PT did that, which I mean, yeah, we can get frustrated even with our own profession. Cause like, like ridiculous symptoms are absolutely not a thing that I'm necessarily going to go for imaging. Now, if there are additional hard neuroscience where I'm concerned about spinal cord, that's a different story. But, um, I love talking to patients. If there's like nerve pain or like those ridiculous symptoms talking about how our backs are very mechanically tolerant, but they're chemically sensitive. And so I think exactly what you told her, I mean, the idea of if we can just get some blood flow going, like do what you can just get some gentle movement back into those joints move and that inflammatory chemicals can kind of get washed out or diluted. Like that's how we start getting some centralization and getting that pain away. We definitely don't need images for that. Yeah. And you know, Megan, it's funny because she's totally a patient that like you would love working with too. And I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up listening to this episode. So shout out, you know who you are. Um, <laughs> but my favorite part about working with her in the clinic was when I first met her, she told me that she goes to Orange Theory. And at her age, it's uncommon that you hear that she goes like somebody goes to this high intensity exercise class and she was getting ready for discharge. And I was like, you know, like I'd love to do some return to sports stuff with you. And I got her loaded up. We were doing circuits. We got her sweating and everybody else in the clinic is kind of like, what's going on in that corner? Like, I, I don't like that, <laughs> but um, it was freaking awesome. And, and it, it shows that it has that much more of an impact when somebody like that experiences back pain or any setback, it's devastating because her baseline is active and fit mm -hmm. and involved. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so awesome. And I mean, I love all the tips that you gave today and just, hopefully giving some positivity to people that like, there are so many factors that go into this and therefore a lot of levers that can be pulled um, yes. to hopefully improve the situation. And, you know, your image doesn't define you. I think one of the quotes I've seen floating around that I think you shared also is like an MRI shows anatomy, not pain. And yes, it's as simple as that. Yep. Now, one more just kind of thing here. I mean, I know that we've discuss this throughout the episode, but as we wrap up here for somebody who's listening, who wants to promote spine health or, you know, just be more resilient against low back pain. Are there any kind of like daily habits or just low hanging fruit type of movements, exercises that you think a person should be using in order to reduce the chances of having this low back pain? Reduce the chances or get rid of I guess either one, just overall, like promoting a healthy spine. Yeah. I mean, Chinese planks, honestly, is probably one of my favorite ones. Um, like if I, in my head, I, I immediately go to like a rehab EMOM style thing. Like I want some kind of cardio component to just get general blood flow going. Um, I want an isometric, so Chinese planks or a Sorensen hold. And then I want deadlifts really. That's if we're not at deadlifts, if we can't do them yet, then we're going to do them elevated or some modified version, maybe some sumo deadlifts, but we're going to end up at deadlifts and building that up. Like we talked about earlier, I mean, getting your back as strong as possible is inevitably going to be the best way to avoid having back pain, whether it be the first occurrence or later, if you've already had it and you're trying to get out of back pain. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Super just straight to the point, like get your back strong. And in terms of like, other just kind of like lifestyle daily routine. Is there anything else you like to recommend like walking or relaxation techniques, like anything yeah. of that nature? 
Yeah. I love walking like that kind of like low intensity, just steady state. Um, for sure. Cutting sugar out of the diet. If that's something that like, it depends. I mean, if your diet's pretty clean, then I don't want someone to get overly OCD about it. But if you regularly have a Mountain Dew or something like, Hey, let's cut that out for a period of time until we can get out of pain. Um, those are probably the big ones, like lifestyle wise, is just get out and move more, preferably in the sunshine. Cause I mean, low back pain, neck pain, there's a lot of things where it's like mental health does play a factor in here. So let's get out and get some general movement, maybe with some friends in some sunshine. Like I'm going to look at that, like, Hey, let's get your community involved. Like, who are you around? Like, let's, let's get that going as well. Yeah. Awesome to hear. And so true. It's, we are complicated beings as humans and we can use that to our advantage, you know, have a little bit of fun, do things that bring you joy. And I definitely think that, I mean, for me, it definitely makes a difference too. So Megan, this has been such a fun conversation. I would just love to wrap things up with one final question that all of my guests receive here on the podcast here at the goal set mindset podcast. We're centered around the pursuit of high achievement through passion, perseverance, and performance. And I would love if you could share a personal goal that you have right now and how you're working towards it. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, there's actually a bunch, those that know me know that I kind of have squirrel brains. So there's generally multiple things that I'm working on at any given time. Um, the big one for me, so I have a friend named Whitney. She's actually a PT at, out in Mammoth, California. And she, I haven't actually started training yet. So I will caveat with that part. I used to trail run. Um, I did like the longest is, I've done a 16 miler. Um, and she has recently convinced me that at some point I should do end to end of Zion with her, which is about like 36 miles it's a long distance it's an ultra basically um so yeah I am going to I was originally going to start training earlier in the year but then I got really sick and that kind of messed with my cardiovascular component so I've been doing more like bodybuilding and getting back into CrossFit but yeah so I will at some point within the next year be running into end of Zion while keeping all of my PRs that's I told her from the get-go like I'm not losing a single bit of straight I'm okay with not gaining any for that period of time because it really is tough to get that level of distance at the same time. And we're not trying to break a record by any means, but just the capacity to run 36 miles and still keep my 265 back squat at minimum. There we go. That is badass. I love that. And I mean, hey, like everything that CrossFit preaches, right? Fitness is multifactorial as well. So if you got the endurance, you got the strength, um, that sounds awesome. I'm excited to follow your journey on that. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Of course. Uh, Now, before we sign off here, Megan, I would love to, if you can just share some ways that listeners can reach out to you, support you, uh, connect with you. Yeah. The easiest is honestly going to be Instagram. It's move on the daily. Daily is D-A-L-E-Y, like my last name. Um, I'm very responsive on there. So if you shoot me a message, I'll get back to you. And then that also has links for just about everything else. It's got my website on there. It's got my email. And then there's um, a link for, I have a decent archive of blog and YouTube videos that are all linked through my bio and Instagram. Awesome. Great. Yeah. I'll definitely throw that stuff in the description so listeners can check it out. Megan, thank you so much for your time today for this conversation. I can't wait to listen back to this one and like absorb all of these nuggets as well. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation on low back pain and feel empowered to overcome it with these awesome lifestyle and rehab tips from Megan. If you are enjoying the show, I would love if you subscribed on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode.